Through rigorous research, it has become known that the way in which humans experience life, our decisions, and our life situations can affect the genes of our future descendants. DNA has allowed us to realize that humans are connected more than we ever realized. Part of the building blocks of what makes us up as humans is understanding how connected we are and that what we do now serves a purpose for those down the line. In the same way, one part of the building blocks that makes us up as Christians is beginning to understand how we all get to be connected and that our actions and our words serve a purpose in advancing the kingdom of God and magnifying His name as one unified body. The DNA of who we are, our building blocks, are all connected with one another through each of us living with purpose. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's great to see you today. I trust that you have allowed your heart to be opened up to... Uh, to the Lord this morning because his presence was here it's here and uh, just in what we sang the theology of what we sang uh, there is so much that you can take and know and it can change the whole tenor of your week right now today by just declaring declaring who God is what he's done and what that means for me right and so I'm just trusting that you have grabbed a hold of our worship time. Allow that to energize and propel you out into this week. And uh, walk around as people who have already lived in victory, who already have victory and are now living in victory. Amen? Amen. Amen. I need to hear a little bit better than that. Amen? Amen. There we go. Well, Bob's definitely here. But Hey, there's nothing like a warm ocean breeze uh, blowing a, over your face, is there not? Just experienced that about a month ago, and it's just amazing sitting on the beach and, and feeling that breeze just hit your face. And, you know, even when we were there, I, I noticed that um, there were some sailboats out, uh, out in, the, uh, in the gulf where we could see them, and they would actually, they actually went by. And just watching that, it's amazing how... Um, you know, you just throw up a canvas and, on a pole, and then you put it in a, in a, a, a floating piece of wood, and uh, you can actually travel all over the world, really, just by sailing, right? Um, you know, before we ever had motorized boats and, and um, all the technology we have today, obviously you realize that uh, any explorer any sailor, any merchant, they absolutely relied on one thing, and that was the wind, did they not? To get where they were going, they needed that breeze, that wind, and they, knew, they needed to know how to set their sail. But you know, in the ancient world, when everything revolved around the wind, um, all sailors, whether it be an explorer, whether it be a merchant, whether it uh, be anybody that was on the sea, knew that there was one place there was one place to be avoided at all cost. In the ancient world, you could drop this phrase or this word, the doldrums, I guess that's two words, and every sailor knew that was exactly the place that you wanted to avoid at all cost. The doldrums. Everybody, do you recognize that word? I shared that word with Ben this week and he just looked at me like, what are you talking about? And I felt really old. Because I feel like maybe that's an old term, right? The doldrums, it's, it's from the root word that means um, it's dull or, or lifeless. 
It's kind of the words that we would use maybe. I guess we don't use it much anymore. Um, but you're bored, you're restless, you're in a slump, you're in the, in the doldrums. And there is this specific region in the oceans that every sailor avoided at all costs if they could called the doldrums. It's right along the equator. Um, and, and what happened in this region was the weather always illustrated this lifeless condition. You know, the way the earth rotates, the currents and clouds of the northern hemisphere would collide with the clouds and, and the currents of the s southern hemisphere, and it would just create this area. In fact, today, you can look it up, it's the intertropical convergence zone. Five miles north of the equator, five miles south of the equator is this place, the doldrums. And really what happens is the winds cancel each other out, creating a still windless, lifeless zone. Actually, what happens is in this still, lifeless zone where the winds are not moving uh, the atmospheric, uh, uh, I'm not even going to get into it. I don't know what I'm talking about, all right? The atmospheric uh, whatever. There, there's all sorts of storms that happen. The, 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 the highest precipitating storms in the world happen in that area because there's just no movement. It's dull, and then it just dumps rain all over that place. And what would happen is, in this still, windless, lifeless zone, sailors who would depend on the wind would, would drift into there, and they would do nothing but sit. And then the storms would come, and they would absolutely be fighting for their life. More feared than the Bermuda Triangle. It was a place that if you went in, there was a high percentage that you were never coming out. The doldrums. A stagnant, in a slump, going through the motions place. It's being stuck in a place where there's no wind, no breath, no life, nothing to motivate, nothing to move you along. Ever been in the doldrums? Has that described your life? At times, maybe it's describing your life right now. That honestly, if you looked at the flow of your life, the direction of your life, you just maybe feel like you're in the doldrums. You're stuck. Um, there's a convergence of winds from this part of your life and this part of your life, and it's just creating this scenario where you're just lifeless. So often, sometimes it happens just because we live life without any intention, intentionality. And we just kind of drift along. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in this kind of lifeless, stuck place. Sometimes it's because the circumstances of life hit us so hard and just knock us for a loop and create a, a numbness to life that after a while, we become cynical, become jaded, become just a little numb to life. And, and we don't really commit. We don't risk. We kind of just survive because life circumstances have already tossed us to and fro. And actually, we find ourselves just kind of lifeless, stagnant, maybe a going through the motions, a stuck existence. Sometimes I've found that the reason why we live in the doldrums is because we're just weary. We're fatigued. We, we, we have set a course. Um, we have consistently developed a, a lifestyle of making decisions that are, that are right, that are uh, consistent, and yet the monotony 
and the deluge of just having to make that decision over and over and over just kind of creates a weariness, a fatigue in our life. Have you ever experienced that? Just for you feel soul weary, soul tired. And you find yourself often in the doldrums. Just because you're so tired, you're just stuck. You're lifeless. And you know, we have uh, been walking through this DNA series for this month. And I want to finish today on, uh, on, this, on this note as we look at that fourth cup. Again, for you, those of you who may not have been here, just to have a quick recap. Um, our belief is that God has always been telling a story uh, that relates to us all through the scriptures. It's a continuing narrative, is it not? From Genesis 1-1 all the way through. And that we can find, especially in the Old Testament, we start to see, and then in the New Testament it's completely fleshed out, how God consistently acts, believes, uh, works with us as humans. It's the story of God in relationship to us. The story of, 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 of the Bible. And we've noticed that there's some things that we can grab onto about what do I need to know about who God created me to be, who he wants me to be. It's kind of our spiritual DNA, right? We spent some time just kind of talking about DNA and this whole phenomenon that's happened over the last, especially 50 or 60 years, and how we've understood more and more how we're wired, why we do what we are, why we are the way that we are. Um, remember, we talked about the fact that 99.9% .9 of me is the same as 99.9% .9 of you. That's incredible. It's the 0.01% that we always see and we always compare and we always, when really, man, we are, we, are, we are created so much alike. And we believe that the scriptures kind of lay out a blueprint for our DNA of who God really, really designed us to be. Beyond just the physical, that, 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 that part of us that is at the core of who we are, that spiritual being that we are, there's a blueprint for what God has designed for that DNA to look like. And we've noticed specifically, and we've used this statement, and I would, I gotta say this statement, right, because we say it every week. Uh, what makes you you is what God wants to do with you. What makes you you the blueprint for what God has for you is what he wants to do with you, in you. And we've, we've walked through that. We kind of get this idea from Exodus chapter 6. And really, if you think about Jesus that, that night uh, when he's going to be betrayed, when he's going to be arrested, when he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, we all know that night. We call it the Last Supper night, right? And in that night, he was celebrating the Passover meal. That celebration of the Jewish culture and nation as they would remember what God had done for them. And in that meal, uh, we see so much of what God consistently always does with his people. What he has designed for his people. And they would celebrate what God had done in the exodus from Egypt. When they had passed over from being slaves to on their journey to becoming a nation. The people that God had always promised them to be with a land. And in that Passover meal, we see that they would remember Exodus chapter 6. As they would remember the promises of God, actually the plan and the will of God, as he would promise these, I will, 
I will do this. I will do that. And we see that as it's a blueprint for what he did for Egypt. It's actually a foreshadow or a foretaste of what God wants to do in every life. What he wants to do with you and me. And we remember that he promised the children of, of Israel that I will, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. The promise is that God will bring us out of the slavery, the bondage that we find ourselves in. For them, it was a physical slavery. It was the Egyptians. But we see through Scripture that that is a picture of the, our life being bound to the life of Egypt is being bound to the life of sin, to that fallen nature. And he said, I will, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And we've understood that this redundant phrase is actually not redundant. It's, it's fleshing out more and more what it means to be brought out, what it means to be free. And we found that uh, in the scriptures that God's intent and plan was always to set his people free so that they, what was the phrase we used? He brought us out of slavery so that he could bring slavery out of us. And it's the continuing work of us finding freedom in Christ. In fact, you look at the New Testament, two-thirds of the New Testament is written in this idea of us being sanctified or the process of being set apart, the process of, the, of him making and molding and conforming us to the image of his son. God did, wants to do far more in your life to simply forgive your sins. He wants to create in your life the image and the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? And we live in just a justification culture when actually the scriptures are written beyond justification, right? As great as justification is, the process, the plan of God is to do far more than justify us. It is to sanctify us into his image. And we say, I will free you. And we remember how through the process of taking them to the land of, of Canaan, their homeland, he is sharing with them his, his word as he's revealing to them the way and the will and the, the, the moral code of God, which actually ends up setting us free from this life of slavery and sin. And so he's going to take us out. He's going to free us. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Uh, it's this idea of, listen, I will redeem you. I will, I'm going to purchase you back so that I can make you what you were originally created to do. Right? He is going to connect us back with the original purpose and design he had for our life. See, God is, in the, is interested in and he is in the business of making all things new. That which we created was good in the beginning, which has been tainted and, and, pardon my language, screwed up by sin. He is in the process of taking that back until we know that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth, a completely restored heaven and earth. And it starts now in your life and in my life, as the kingdom, remember Jesus couldn't stop talking about the kingdom. The kingdom is now, the kingdom is here. Draw near, the kingdom is in you. And he's starting this process of the kingdom, this making things new again. And it begins in us and it starts when we are redeemed and we discover our purpose. 
says, I will be your God, then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the, the yoke of the Egyptians. This last thing I want you to notice is, I will take you as my own people. And finishing this thought, what are the spiritual building blocks? What's the DNA of a Christian? It's this. It's knowing God. It's finding freedom. It's discovering purpose. And it's making a difference. You see, the Jewish people understood. And as they would remember on that Passover meal, and as they would take a cup of wine, those four cups, those four I will, and they would remember, I will, t I will bring you out. They would drink, and they would celebrate. I will set you free. They would drink, and they would celebrate. I will redeem you. This last one is what they called, it's the cup of halil, the cup of praise. Because they realized that what the plan and mission of God was to make them a people that made a difference in the world that God had created. I, I believe, as Larry Kravis says, says, that all of us, and I look at my life and I look at your life through these lens, we all are looking for two things. At the core base root needs that we have. We need security and we need significance. We, know, we need to know that I'm loved and we, know, we need to know that I matter, right? We need to know that I'm loved and we need to know that I matter. And in this, this cup of praise, as they would remember the Passover, the bringing out, they realized that it all had a purpose. And that was that God was going to use them to make a difference in the world that he created. And they would celebrate that. They would, they would raise a hallelujah. That's what this is, a hallel. They would raise a hallelujah to what God's plan was for them. They get to make a difference in the world that he's created as his people. I would remind you today that there are, uh, you've heard me say this before. I think Greg has quizzed me on this. Um, the two most important days in your life are what? The day you were born and the day you realized why you were born. Those are the two most important days in your life. The day you were born and the day you realized why you were born. And as we understand, what is it that God wants to, who am I? What's the blueprint for my life? It's knowing God, right? Being born from above. It's finding freedom. It's that Romans chapter 6 kind of living. It's that, it's that knowing. It's that yield. It's that reckoning. It's that offering myself completely to him and finding freedom. It's discovering purpose. What is it that you want me to do? How, how, how am I involved in what you're doing? And we see that it culminates in this idea of a people making a difference together. Are you with me this morning? All right. Obviously, we understand that the children of Israel were the, the people of God. We refer to that phrase, the people of God, right? And we understand that um, uh, uh, that God called out a man, Abraham, to do more than just be a solo act. God always intended for there to be a group of people, a community. His promise to Abraham is, I will make you the father of a great nation. 
You see, to understand God's plan for our individual lives is to understand it in the context of something bigger than just our individual lives. And as he's working in this world, bringing about his purposes, he does so in the context of the people, the, the land of Israel, right? The Jewish nation. But as we understand Jesus coming into this world through that people, we begin to realize that there's a bigger thing than just the people of Israel. Those people who could claim for years and years and years, we are God's chosen people, right? That was their, that was their mark in the world. That was their identity. That's what they hung their hat on. That's what they hung everything on. They were God's chosen people. We begin to, rem- begin to realize in the New Testament as Jesus has come, as he's offered himself up, as he's died and he's rose from the dead, that there is something vastly more important and new that is going on. And this is why Galatians says this. As uh, Paul is, as, is um, talking about what it means to be a believer, what it means to have an identity, he says this, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. That would not have been said for hundreds and hundreds of years, for thousands of years. There was definitely Jew and Gentile, right? That's what they hung everything on, is I am God's chosen people. And yet Jesus says, in what I am about, why I came, why I died, why I rose from the dead, as Paul is, is an agent of this new church, this new covenant being, uh, being established, it's hung on this reality that there is actually now neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor, there is male, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are what? Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What? Like that was what they hung there. That was the dividing line in the ancient world. There were Jews and everybody else. I am a seed. I am a descendant of Abraham. Right? And the new covenant is absolutely just blowing that up. And he says, if you belong to Christ, You're a part of what God has always been attempting to do in this world, starting with the person of Abraham. You are heirs according to the promises that God started making to Israel way back when. It's why he says in Ephesians, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I know I'm probably not telling you anything new today, but I want you to remember this. The faithful remnant of Old Testament Israel and New Testament Christianity are together the one genuine seed of Abraham and thus heirs according to the promise. And this is now not chosen, is not based on religion or race, but rather on the basis of a relationship to the resurrected Redeemer. (laughs) There has been a total shift in what it means to become God's chosen people. Amen? Wow, you guys are not excited about that. Maybe you need to go home and think about it a little bit. Wow. In fact, 
Here's what Peter, so Paul's banging this drum. Here comes Peter. He's going to bang the same drum when he says this. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. This is Jesus, right? They joke with me, but I think every church should be called Cornerstone. That's my favorite church name. In fact, I'm going to change the name of our church to Cornerstone. Can I get an an A? We'll change it just right here. No, it doesn't work that easy. I love that word Cornerstone. It's Jesus. Jesus is a chosen and precious Cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What he's saying is, listen, what happened was Jesus came as the cornerstone and his own people rejected him as the cornerstone. But he was coming to be the cornerstone for something way greater than just whether his people accepted him or not. And what happens is, is that now you, Jew and Gentile, all of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ have become, an, have become the chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a God's special possession. Can I just detour for a moment? Because we're in the middle of a lot of cultural things. And so often we identify ourselves as Americans above and before everything else. Guess what? If you're a believer, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. What are you? A holy nation. Your allegiance is to something far more than what citizenship you have on this earth. Amen? Yeah, that's what I thought I heard. We need to identify as believers. First and foremost. Well before we do as Americans. Because we are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. And we have been called as God's special possession to declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To fulfill God's purposes, another better Israel would be required. A servant who would take Israel's place, doing what Israel was unable to do, fulfilling her calling to bring light to the nations. You see, God's purpose for Israel was not to just bring the law to the world as a solution for the world's problem. The church does not replace Israel. Rather, Israel from the beginning was the seedlings of the church, a redeemed church, a new people, able to be in fellowship with God and able to fulfill his purpose. That was God's plan from the beginning. And God gave Israel the law to guide her like a child until she could come of age through Jesus Christ. Christ. And then through Israel, the Messiah came. He created a new people, the church. Israel was transformed and expanded to include Gentiles now. And God doesn't see chosen through ethnic lens, but through Jesus' blood. Everyone who has faith in Jesus is God's chosen people. 
That's why when he makes the promise, I will take you as my people. It has significant, significant implications for you and I. You are God's chosen people. What does that mean? What does God want to do with his people? Well, it's what he's always wanted to do with his people. Think about what he said in Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? That's a lot of salts. It is no longer good for anything. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. You see, you and I as God's people are called to this difference-making, game-changing, world-changing idea of becoming the salt and the light of the world. Amen? Am I putting you to sleep? Because I'm about ready to stop. No, I'm teasing. No, I, I just, we got to grab a hold of this. Like we are God's chosen people. And what does God do with his people? He does incredible things. He makes them the light of the world. You see, the context of making a difference is not we, is we, not me. The way I understand what God wants to do as I know him, as I find freedom, as I discover purpose, is that he wants me to become a difference maker in this world, but it's in the context of his people. I now get to make a difference in a group. The way he's going to change the world, minister to the world, bring his kingdom into the world, save people from the world, is through a group of people. It is we, not me. And so what I need to understand is that God is drawing me, his intent, his design, his purpose was always to draw me into a community whereby the community makes a huge difference. I like what Chris Hodges says, true fulfillment never comes alone. It can only be attained within a group of people. And this is why the New Testament bangs this drum all throughout a lot of the epistles. Each of you should have whatever gift you have received to, should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifest, manifestation of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit have been given for what? The common good. You see, what God wants to do in your life as you discover your purpose, he wants you to make a difference, but that difference is made in the context of a community. And that's why they can't stop talking about in the New Testament, do you know what your spiritual gift is? Have you tapped in to how God has wired you and how that will work in the context of the body of Christ, the community of believers? Because God is desiring for us to make a difference. But it's not Chip go out and change the world. It's Chip join the church and the church changes the world. Find my role. 
find my place in this living organism called the church and realize that God has always promised to change the world, to be a light to the world through a group of his people. Amen? And so for us, it's so much like, you know, what am I supposed to do? And uh, what does God want to do with my life? And what is God's will? And how does God want to use me? And, and we get so caught up in, in what does God want me to do? And yet it's always right in front of me. It's just jump into the church wholeheartedly into this community and figure out how you're wired to serve the church. And as you serve the church, the church becomes this strong, growing, vibrant organism that the world can't help but look on and say, wow, what is going on there? I don't understand that. These people love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. They want another one another, as the New Testament talks about. And it's like, wow, we become this city on a hill that cannot be hit. The way God makes a difference in this world is through his church. And he calls you to be a difference maker by opening yourself up to finding your role in the body of Christ and serving wholeheartedly. Making a difference is all about knowing your role. That's simple, isn't it? I don't have to change the world by myself. In fact, I was never intended to change the world by myself. All I was called to do is join this world-changing organization called the kingdom, called the church. And I simply need to figure out how I'm wired. I, I love what Rick Warren shares. I need to find my shape. What are my spiritual gifts? What, are, what is my heart? Where's my passion at? What do I naturally flock toward? What is my shape? What are my abilities, the natural abilities God has given me? What is my personality? What is my life experiences? Sometimes because of what I have went through, I become the perfect person to help other people who are now facing those circumstances. That becomes my role in the kingdom because of life experiences. What I've went through, whether I asked for it or made a decision for it or it just happened to me. I find my shape, my spiritual gifts, my passion, my ability, my personality, my experience, they all blend into me helping understand what is my role. I get to make a difference in this world by becoming a part of something that is far greater than me. And as I do my role, as you do your role, all of a sudden this living, breathing organism of the body of Christ becomes a city on a hill that the world cannot help but see the glory and the grace of our God through his son, Jesus Christ. You want to make a difference? I believe that every one of us are looking for security and significance. We want to matter. God has a plan for that. I will make you my people. I'll give you security. I'll give you significance. Figure out how I wired you and jump in both feet into the kingdom, into the church. Making a difference is all about knowing my I'm going to finish with this. 
this whole series, I just want to finish with this illustration as the band comes and starts to play. The year was 1519. The year was 1519. The place was the, the coasts of Mexico, home to the great Aztec Empire. The man was Cortez. He lands on the coasts of Mexico, on the eastern coasts of Mexico, with 508 soldiers, 100 sailors, 16 horses, on 11 ships. Now, to understand this man, Cortez, you have to know where he came from. He was a man, a kid who rose from obscurity to become a government official, even a mayor, twice elected. He lived in a relative life of ease in Cuba after fighting most of his life to get to that position, that place. And no doubt Cortez's story could have been very simple. Fought, pushed, worked, went from nothing to becoming a respected official. With, I'm sure a, a good pension, good retirement plan, a life of ease. And yet there was something in Cortez that burned for something greater something better. Somehow Cortez tapped into the, the reality that God is wanting to do far more with our lives than just reach a certain position. And Cortez didn't know that, but it was how he was wired. And he couldn't live with just being a mayor of a town. And so he gets a commission to take 11 ships, 508 soldiers, 100 sailors, and 16 horses to explore, to conquer off the coast of Mexico. He lands. He does a little reconnaissance. He makes some relationships with the locals. And he begins to realize just how vast the Aztec Empire is. He begins to realize that it'd be far easy to turn around and sail back to Cuba. And yet Cortez makes a decision in that moment. It was something that determined the fate of his life. It was a decision that changed civilization in that region. And it was the moment for which he is known for that stands the test of time. He looked around at his 600 men, his 16 horses, his 11 ships. And he ordered that 10 of those ships be scuttled. In other words, broken apart, done away with. He takes that last ship and he sends it back to Spain. And then he looks at his men And obviously tells them, guys, there's no going back. We're here, and we have cut off any kind of way to escape. 
That was 1519. By 1521, Cortez, with what started with 600 men, 500 soldiers, conquered the Aztec Empire, faced an army of 10,000 Aztec warriors, and prevailed. Because in that moment, we could either shrink back, he could have turned and sailed back, he could have been completely overwhelmed. He chose to take a step, to make a commitment, to believe, and to cut off every kind of retreat, to make him accountable to a firm commitment to this plan that he had in place. And I want to remind you today, God consistently as always had a plan for your life. It's in knowing him in a personal relationship. It's in finding freedom. It's in discovering the purpose he has for your life. It's actually becoming a part of something that's a difference maker, the church. And yet far too often we find ourselves kind of in the doldrums. I talk to a lot of people who I'm just not sure what I'm supposed to do. I, I don't know yet what I'm, where I'm supposed to serve or how I'm supposed to be used. Or I would remind you, just like the principle of Cortez's life, that if you will make an unreserved, unretreating commitment to the plan God has for your life and to his church, your life will look like Cortez's down the road. You will see where you became a difference maker through your role in the kingdom of God and in his church. And as we go, as we finish this series, I want to remind you that at the blueprint of what God has for our life and knowing him, finding freedom, discovering purpose, making a difference, the core of that it's his call to us to wholeheartedly, unreservedly jump in both feet, be committed to the plan he has for our lives. And to know that the promise of God, I will bring you out, I will set you free, I will redeem you, and I will take you as my people. And as you become my people, you become the greatest difference makers the world has ever seen. You become salt and light. You become this city on a hill that cannot be hit. That will become the story of your life. And it's far much better than conquering the Aztec Empire that Cortez does. And so would you, as we go, as we leave this series, as we think about what it means, God's spiritual blueprint, would you determine in your heart right now, would you make a commitment to the Lord? Maybe it's just another one, a fresh one, a new one. Maybe for some of you it's brand new, but you're gonna open your arms completely, unreservedly to what God wants to do with you. You're gonna let him bring you out. You're gonna let him set you free. You're gonna let him discover pur your purpose, and you're gonna let him make you his people a light to this world.
Let's stand and sing together as we go from this place. Would you make that commitment in your heart once again? to change the world in the power and the love of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that you give us the strength, the ability to be the body. So let us do that in his name, we pray. Amen? Man, we'll see you next week.